Thank you for listening. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit the Hay Player at hayfestival.org. Borada! Borada, Cloyster Gatley, good morning and welcome to Hay and uh, to the sixth in our series in partnership with Cambridge University. Christopher, Christopher Reynolds is the Plumian Professor of Astronomy at Cambridge University. His research interests include the observational, focus on the observational and theoretical high energy astrophysics. His current work uh, is mainly on the astrophysics of black holes and the part they play in the universe. And uh, he'll be lecturing on that today, uh, unraveling the mysteries of black holes. Please welcome Christopher Reynolds. Okay, well, thank you. It's a huge pleasure to be here, and it's great to see such a crowd wanting to, listen, uh, to learn about black holes. Um, so it was just about six weeks ago when um, a swirling vortex that crushes known reality made it onto the front page of every newspaper, um, and black holes as well. But, uh, <laughs> So we actually know an enormous amount about um, these beautiful and exotic objects, and that's what I want to get across to you today. And we'll come back to this, this picture of black holes that became famous. Like I say, it was really um, uh, amazing to see black holes on the front page of almost every newspaper in the Western world, at least. Um, so we'll come back to this image a little bit later, and we'll talk about it. But let's start off by just you know, getting the groundwork. What is a black hole? And we have to start the story with uh, Albert Einstein, who, over 100 years ago now, rewrote the book on how gravity works. Einstein said that gravity is not some mystical force that reaches out across the universe and grabs something and pulls it to you. Gravity is actually a manifestation of bending of space and time, which sounds a pretty esoteric thing, but you can write down equations that describe it. I'm not going to do that. Um, and... And Einstein, in doing that, rewrote the book on how, on how gravity, gravity works. Now, it's, um, in fact, 100 years ago tomorrow that this gentleman, uh, who, of course, let me come back here, this gentleman, who, uh, next to Einstein, that's uh, Sir Arthur Eddington, um, went out, he, he went to this tiny little island just off the coast of Africa, and he watched a total solar eclipse. He watched the, the, the moon block the sun. And when the moon blocks the sun, what he was trying to see is whether the stars shift their position. And he found they actually do. As the moon blocks the sun, the stars near the sun all appear to kind of shift out. And what he was seeing is the fact that the gravity of the sun is actually bending light. It's bending the light of the stars that are passing by it. In doing that, Eddington basically proved Einstein's theory of gravity, or at least he... he, he he, it was a, a very strong endorsement of Einstein's theory of, of, of relativity, which is Einstein's theory of gravity. So that's the background to, to the background theory we understand for black holes. So how, how, what is actually a, a black hole? Well, to, to, to quote the great philosopher uh, Tom York from, from uh, Radiohead, uh, gravity always wins. And, and what I mean by that is, given a chance, gravity can actually overwhelm every other force of nature. Gravity can actually crush matter and overwhelm every other force in nature. Now, where does that happen? So, for example, in the heart of a dying star, it's possible for every other force of nature to, to be incapable of stopping the crushing force of gravity. And what happens is the heart of the star is just crushed all the way down, and then you, in some sense, break our known laws of physics in doing that. What you end up with is a structure that looks like this. At the very center is a thing called a space-time singularity that there's been many Star Trek episodes written about. Um, and this is really a fancy way of saying that it's a place where unknown laws of physics break down. Some people sometimes say it's a place where we've, we've torn space and time. That's really a fancy way of saying that it's, it's where our known laws of physics break, break down. Close to that object, the gravity is extremely strong. It's so strong that anything will get pulled into it. 
And by anything, I mean any material that's orbiting, any rockets that are trying to escape from it, any Starship Enterprise trying to escape from it, um, any light, a laser beam will be, will be just pulled into that object and cannot escape. Surrounding that is a region that we call the event horizon. This is the point of no return. So if you're outside of this, the gravity is weakened off, and you can actually get away. It may be difficult to get away. You may have to have a very strong rocket, but you can actually get away if you're, if you're, far, if you're that distance away. That's called the event horizon. So if you were to actually look at a black hole, this is what it would look like. You know, the event horizon would turn into that dark sphere, and any light behind it would be absorbed by, by, by that event horizon. All the light that uh, is just skimming the event horizon would be bent, so it looked like a giant lens on the sky. So this is, this is the basic notion of what a, 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 a black hole is. So now that we've briefly oriented ourselves what black holes are, let's go hunting for them in the, in the real universe. Now, as someone who hunts for black holes, the problem we face is that black holes are black, space is black, um, and so it's actually quite hard to, you might find it, you might think it's very hard to find the black holes. In fact, it's actually not as bad as that. If we look out into the universe with, say, the Hubble Space Telescope, and this is, a, this is one of these amazing pictures, one of these legacy pictures from, from Hubble, where we have taken the most boring patch of sky we can, a patch of sky which actually looks completely black to many telescopes, and we've just stared at it with Hubble Space Telescope for many days, and this is what you see. You see a, a, a sky full of galaxies. Everything, everything you're seeing here is a, is a galaxy. Now, every bit of light you're seeing here is generated by a star. You know, um, these galaxies contain billions of stars, and they all shine, and that creates the, the, the light you see. So every, all the light you're seeing here is actually starlight, you know, basically the same as the sun. It's just, it's just starlight. However, let's change the way we look at the universe. This is if we look with the Hubble Space Telescope, and the Hubble Space Telescope is using just normal light, just optical light, the kind of light that we see with, with, with our eyes. But if we were Superman and we could see X-rays, we put on our X-ray vision, what would we see? This is a picture of the most boring part of the sky you can find with an X-ray telescope, the so-called Chandra uh, X-ray Observatory. And this probably looks even more boring. This, this, this is basically a bunch of stars, you think. In fact, that's not true. Everything you're seeing here is actually... Um, a powerful source of X-rays associated with a black hole at the, center of, at the center of some galaxy. So you're getting a completely different view of the universe by looking in a different part of the, of the spectrum. So looking in the opt optical part of the spectrum, looking in the X-ray part of the spectrum. So how do we know that all of these are associated with, with, with galaxies? Well, let's, let's zoom in on a very nearby galaxy. This is a galaxy a beautiful-looking galaxy. The romantic name of this galaxy is NGC 1365. Um, and again, this is actually a Hubble Space Telescope uh, um, picture. Um, and if we were to now look at this galaxy, again, with, with X-ray eyes, we see this. Okay, this, is, this is a tremendously powerful X-ray source at the center of this galaxy. Not only is it, so you know, how powerful is it? There's as much energy coming out in X-rays uh, from this, in the center of this galaxy as there is in all the starlight in the galaxy put together. So it's a lot of, it's a lot of energy. And that, I'm, I'm telling you, is associated with the, with the central black hole. Now, um, you say, well, black holes are black. How on earth can they be putting out so much, so much energy? Uh, what's going on here? How can something that just sucks everything in be so luminous and creating such, such, um, such energetic objects. And the, to, to see the answer to that, we have to go to one of see the click, Einstein's other famous results, which is E equals mc squared. This is extremely famous equation, but a lot of people don't really internalize what this, what this equation means. What this, what this equation is saying is you can take mass and it equates to a certain amount of energy. But the key thing here is that to, to get the energy from the mass, you have to multiply it by a number, the, the speed of light squared. 
And the speed of light is extremely high. It's a very, very large number, the speed of light. So, and we have to square it, so it becomes an even larger number. So what this equation tells us is that a little bit of mass can make a huge amount of energy, because we have to, you know, the, the, that, that number we multiply through by is large. Let me try and give you some feel for, for what this looks like. So here's a, here we have a, a, a book, um, and it's, it weighs, let's say it weighs a kilogram. It's actually a little lighter than a kilogram. Um, so if I was just to drop this book from a height like this, that's releasing some energy. Yeah, the, as it falls, gravity is pulling on it, and it's releasing energy. I was hoping for a nice, louder thud there, but um, it's releasing some energy. And in the units that physicists use to describe energy, we use a unit called a joule. It's maybe releasing a few joules, maybe 10 joules or so. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a small amount of energy. If I was to take this book and instead, um, it's all instead of a book, have a kilogram of, say, high explosive, TNT, they wouldn't let me have that on the stage. Um, but if I was having a kilogram of explosive and blow it up, you can imagine that it would make a bit of a mess in the stage. Um, the amount of energy I'd be releasing there is a, a few a million joules. So it's a lot more than dropping the book. You know, it's, it, it, can be, it can be up to a million times more than dropping the book. That amount, you know, if, I, if this was a kilogram of high explosives, would still be just one billionth of that number, of, of the, of the um, number you get from taking that mass and multiplying it by, by c squared. If this was a kilogram of hydrogen gas, and I was to undergo, make it go through a nuclear reaction, nuclear fusion, and turn it into helium gas, I would get um, a lot more energy out and, in fact, I get enough energy out that it would make one of these, make a nuclear explosion. Okay. Uh, so this, this, this explosion here is, or the explosion I would get from taking a kilogram and, and undergoing nuclear fusion would be the equivalent to about 150 kiloton nuclear explosion. So the equivalent of 150 kilotons or 1,000 tons of high explosive. So now let's come to the black hole. If I was to take this book and throw it into the black hole, I would get more than 10 times that amount of energy. Okay? So just by throwing this book into a black hole, I would, get, I would extract from it an enormous amount of, of energy. So these, these are some numbers that, uh, for, for some reference. Now, how does that work? Well, if I was to throw this book into a black hole, and suppose someone was to throw it, as it fell into the black hole, it would speed up, it would get faster and faster, you could actually get close to the speed of light as this book fell into the black hole. Suppose someone was throwing a book down in, in the other direction, and the two books hit each other, maybe these two books hitting each other at the speed of light, boom, huge amounts of energy would be, would be released. Okay. So, now, believe it or not, nature doesn't throw books into black holes. Um, but what it does do is black holes can find themselves in environments where there's a huge amount of gas around. And the gas gets pulled towards the black hole and starts to orbit around the black hole. And as it orbits around the black hole, it's un there's internal friction forces in the gas. And that energy I was just describing, that huge amount of energy, is, re is released as the, as the, the gas spirals in. <clears throat> How much in terms of E equals mc squared? It's about 10% of that E equals mc squared is released as, as the matter flows into the, flows into the black hole. That's 10 times more efficient than nuclear, uh, nuclear reactions can ever be. Okay, so this is nature's most efficient way of producing energy from large amounts of matter by throwing matter into, in, into a black hole. Now, just to, to, to briefly um, point at some of, try and give you a little bit of a feel for some of the kind of research that, 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 that goes on in this field. So it's not actually just a simple matter of throwing gas into, into the black hole, having it swirl around and fall down. In fact, just understanding how this gas that's swirling around the black hole actually gets rid of that sense of rotation and manages to sort of slide its way into the black hole, if you like. You know, how does a plug hole work? 
Um, that's actually an enormously complicated, complicated problem. And there's a, there's a whole field of astrophysical fluid dynamics. So people do fluid dynamics if they're trying to fly airplanes. You can make computer models of airplanes flying through the air. And you can um, see how the air flows across the wings, how the air flows across the body. There's a whole field of astrophysical fluid dynamics where we try to understand how gas flows in the universe work, and how they power, for example, these kind of things. And this is a computer simulation from one of my students that shows uh, how the gas is actually orbiting around the, the black hole in this case. And, and a crucial part of this is the gas flows become turbulent. You get this, this turbulence created. We've all flown in airplanes through turbulence. Um, you never want to fly through this turbulence, believe me. Um, so. Uh, you, there's a whole, the whole field of study for, on, on, on this. So uh, the, this is a so-called accretion. This is the, the term that we give to material that's flowing onto a black hole. And accretion is actually an incredibly complex phenomena. One of the things that is, is a bit surprising is I just told you how material falling into a black hole releases a huge amount of, huge amount of energy. In fact, that energy sometimes throws stuff back out as well. So if you're releasing that much energy, you can sometimes kick stuff out. And, oops, sorry. You end up with, with beautiful ph phenomena like, like this. This is a nearby galaxy called the Centaurus, um, Centaurus A galaxy, the, the, the image behind it. And it's, it's this beautiful galaxy that has a big, um, what's called dust lane, that has this big ring of dust around it. And that's the, the, the dark stuff you see is absorption, absorption from this dust. But what's that funny color, uh, you know, blue, orange stuff coming out of it? That's a radio map that's superimposed on that image. So we've, we've taken this image of the galaxy, we've then looked at it with a radio telescope, and we've mapped out where radio emission is in this galaxy, and we've dropped that on top of, um, of that image. And what we're seeing here is a spectacular outflow of radio-emitting gas, in fact, extremely um, hot radio-emitting gas that is, is flying out of the galaxy at close to speed of light. It's flying out in the form of jets that are, that are leaving the immediate vicinity of the black hole and coming out of the speed of light. And there's a huge amount of energy associated with those, with those jets. So this brings us to sort of one of the most profound discoveries in the field of, of black hole astrophysics, you know, the study of what black holes do in the universe from the past, past 20 years. Now, let me illustrate that, this, 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 uh, this issue, talking about our, our galaxy. Sorry, it's very sensitive, this. Um, so, and, and, and just a quick, you know, don't be scared by what I'm about to say, and you'll, you'll, you'll see why I don't put, put the warning there. Don't be scared by what I'm about to say. So we live in a galaxy. We live in this large city of stars, and it's 100,000 light years side to side. It takes light 100,000 years to pass from one side of it to, to, to the other side of it. Right in the center of our galaxy, uh, we know there's a black hole. And the black hole is, is, is actually quite small in these, in these terms. It's maybe you know, 10 million kilometers across or so. That sounds pretty big, 10 million kilometers. But compared to the vast size of our galaxy, that's actually quite small. It's also uh, small in terms of mass. And, and again, you know, astronomers get a warped sense of, of numbers, but you just got to look at things in comparison. The mass of the black hole in the center of our galaxy is about four million times the mass of our sun. The mass of the whole galaxy is about a trillion times the mass of the sun. Okay, so, the, so the galaxy is much, much larger, both in size and in mass, than, than the black hole in the center of our galaxy. Now, one quick, you know, how do we know these things? How do we know about the black hole in the center of our galaxy? This is real data um, from looking at stars in the very center of our galaxy from in taking a picture of those stars each month for many years in a row. And you see that the stars in the very center of a galaxy are moving. They're moving like a little swarm of bees. And stars don't just do that by themselves. They don't just move like a little swarm of bees. They have to be moving around something. There's, a grab, there's some very dark, massive object in the center of a galaxy that is making the, 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 the stars swarm around it. 
and we can model this using you know, known laws of gravity, and we conclude that there must be a very small, very massive object at the center, and that's the, that's the black hole. So we have the black hole there. You might think it's pretty inconsequential. It's tiny, and it's a small mass. But here, here's a bit which, which uh, might scare you, but it shouldn't. Um, if we say how much energy does it take, how much energy is released when that black hole is being grown? Okay? So we pour matter into the black hole. We grow it up to this 4 million solar masses. It releases all this energy I've been talking about. You get a very large number. In terms of the, that dual quantity, it's 1 with 54, zero, 54 zeros after it. Okay? So, it's, so it's a very, very large amount of energy. If you now say, well, how much, just as a point of comparison, if I was to take our galaxy and completely destroy it, completely disrupt our galaxy, just move all this matter out to infinite distance, how much energy is that? It's 50 times less than the energy release building the black hole. So the black hole is releasing 50, um, well, I put 20 times here, uh, sorry, uh, between 20 and 50 times more energy to uh, the black hole is releasing that much energy more than uh, needed to disrupt the, disrupt the whole galaxy. So you might start to think, that is worrying. You know, we, we live in a, our, our city of stars that we live in could actually have been completely destroyed by this object that's sitting at the center, at the center of, of, our, uh, of our galaxy. Now, of course, that didn't happen. We're here. Um, but you know, does it ever happen, or you know, it, it does somehow the black hole moderate itself? The answer is yes, it does happen. So we actually can see now many examples in the universe of, of galaxies where the black hole is actually doing appreciable damage if you, or, or regulating the galaxy, um, and this is one example. So this is, this is a, another beautiful system of, of galaxies. This is called the Perseus Cluster of Galaxies, it's, a, it's a, a swarm of about 1,000 galaxies, some of them very large galaxies. And the very central object there, one, the one that looks like a spaghetti monster, that's the, that's the galaxy that's right at the center of the cluster. That's right at the center of this swarm of galaxies. And you can see something's funny about that galaxy because it looks like, looks like a spaghetti monster. Um, well, in fact, that galaxy there should be growing at a colossal rate. There should be something like a 1,000 new stars being born in that galaxy every year. And if you add that up over billions of years, this galaxy should be colossal. It's already large, but it should be, it should be a colossal galaxy. How do we know that? If we look with, again, X-ray eyes, and we look at the same patch of sky, it actually looks like this. There's this huge puddle of hot of gas, of hot gas surrounding this, this, this galaxy, and that hot gas should be cooling down, and as it cools down, building the galaxy up. But it's not doing that. And why is it not doing that? Well, you can see that there's all this bubbles and structure in this gas, and we can directly trace those back to the central black hole. That central black hole and those jets that it's putting out, those radio-emitting jets, are stirring the gas up and is actually stopping it from building, from building that galaxy. And we can again build some you know, detailed models of that using the tools of fluid dynamics. So fundamentally the same kind of tools you use to, to model um, airplanes flying in a computer. And we can see how jets are actually stirring the gas up heating the gas and keeping it from, from building, building that, that galaxy. So the, this is some beautiful uh, simulations by one of the, my postdocs who was working with me. Okay, and that, that's, uh, let's go to, sorry, here. So what we can do now is we can put all our understanding of how this happens into a computer and try to model how the universe as we know it today came to be. And this is one of the um, cutting latest versions of this calculation where we follow how galaxies, how the whole set of galaxies in the universe have formed, starting off with small fluctuations in the early universe 
And as the fluctuations pull together, they start to almost condense out into these galaxies. So it's probably very small for something to see, but down in the bottom left is a little counter that's telling you how old the universe is in this particular model. We're now at 3 billion years, and the universe is 14 billion years today. At a particular moment in time in this, in this computer calculation, you see that uh, the galaxy starts to light up. It looks like little fireworks displays going. And that is this feedback process occurring. That's black holes starting to turn on and feed their energy into the galaxies that are, um, that are starting to grow, sort of the nascent, the nascent galaxies there. And as time goes on, you can see this becomes a, a pretty spectacular fireworks show. And we can actually look out in the universe, and we see this happen as we look um, at great distance, so we're looking back early to the early universe, we see this fireworks show going on. We see all these, all these black holes um, lighting up and doing, doing their, uh, having their effect on the galaxies. As time goes on in this, in this simulation, we see the universe quietens off. The galaxies, as the galaxies start to quieten off, and you start getting towards the, the universe we have around today, which the universe today is actually a pretty quiet place. There's some of these kind of processes going on, but it's actually a pretty quiet place. Okay, so let's come to now talk about um, black holes themselves. You know, black holes are these amazing laboratories for studying extreme nature. I mean, there, there are places, as, as I told you earlier, there are places where space and time at the very center is broken, in some sense, or at least our understanding of it is broken. At that event horizon, that's the point of no return. You can't, you know, gravity is so strong, you can't escape. One thing which um, I mentioned is that um, at... One thing I didn't mention is that at that event horizon, another consequence of not being able to escape is that time is very strongly affected, and time actually freezes in some sense at, at that event horizon. So let's, let's see if we can actually um, study this uh, a little bit. Now, this is to show you, come back to that black hole image, and to, to try to give you a feel for what we actually saw in that black hole image. This wasn't discussed very much by, by a lot of the press. So what we actually saw in that black hole image, and this is the one that's on the, uh, on the left, is the central part of one of those flows of gas that goes around, goes around the black hole. This is in a galaxy, let me just put it in a little bit of detail, this is in a galaxy that is about 50 million light years away, which as, again, astronomers warp sense of distance is actually quite close to us. You know, only, only takes 50 million light years, so that's, you know, dinosaurs are dead by that point. Um, it's also a very large galaxy. It's one of the largest galaxies in, in our local universe. And therefore, this is actually one of the largest black holes in our local universe. This particular black hole was six, is six and a half billion times the mass of the sun. That's a huge black hole by even black hole standards. Um, so the, the image we have, we have here was made by taking radio telescopes over the globe and using some very clever technology to make them act as one. So we, we, in some sense, we had a telescope that was you know, 8,000 kilometers or so um, in extent. And by combining the signals from those telescopes, we could, we could make a, an, an image which looked like this. Now, some people were a little bit disappointed that this image was so fuzzy. Okay. Um, this is the same as imaging an orange on the surface of the moon. Okay. So, you know, give them a break. It's a bit of a fuzzy image. Okay. But, but, but still, uh, you know, it's a, what you're seeing here in that dark circle in the middle really is, you know, some, some um, uh, a consequence of the fact that this is a black hole, that you're looking right down the throat of this, of this black hole. Now, the image on the, on the right here is a theoretical image of what you would see if you had perfect vision and for, for built, built upon our theoretical models. And what we think, what the swirly pattern here, this is that accretion disk. This is that swirling disk of gas that's around the, around the, the black hole. 
you can actually see the black hole itself in the, in, in the center there. That ring is the place where light has gone into orbit around the black hole. And to sort of illustrate that in a little bit more, more detail, this is what happens with a black hole if you have a rain of light coming down from the top of the, of the screen down towards the black hole. Have this rain of light, the rain of, of, of uh, these are the paths that light will take. So imagine shining laser beams down, down onto the black hole. You can see that the light is bent. And in fact, some of the light just starts doing circles around the black hole. So the, the, the picture we saw before with the, uh, the image of the black hole from the Event Horizon Telescope team was an image of the region where the light is doing circles around the black hole. You get like a little storage ring effect where, where you, can, you get, a, get a circle of light. This effect is actually enhanced dramatically because, the black because most black holes are actually spinning. So you know, what does it mean for a perfect, perfect dark sphere to be spinning? How do you ever tell the perfect dark sphere is spinning? You can tell that because a spinning black hole is like a little tornado in space. It just doesn't only bend space with it. It actually makes the space rotate around with it. So it's, it literally is the space-time itself that's rotating around with the black hole. And that, that gives you the black hole rotation. And that also further enhances those, those, um, those orbits of, of, the, of the light rays around the black hole. One of the most amazing things, certainly in my, in my career doing, doing, doing this work, is we can see these effects in real data. And this is one thing I've spent a lot of time, time looking at. What you have to ask is, is how would these actually manifest themselves in real observations? Well, you have to look at how the effect of this tornado-like um, nature of black holes can actually affect the surrounding gas, because the black hole itself, I have to keep reminding yourself, the black hole itself is a black sphere. We can't really do very much with that as a scientist. So you have to look at what the black hole does to its surroundings. And if you were to look at one of the central parts of these um, uh, orbiting gas flows around black holes, what you find is it looks something like this. You have the black hole at the center. You have this orbiting, swirling um, gas disk around it. But there's a, there's a transition in that, in that uh, orbit. It's uh, that location called the ISCO, the ISCO. That stands for, let me take a deep breath for this, the innermost stable circular orbit. Okay, so um, that's a, a technical term for the location where gas stops going around the black hole and gets so close in, it goes, ah, and like spirals into the black hole. Okay, so there is a location where it stops going around and gets close enough in that um, it wants to spiral in. That sets, um, a low, in some sense, that sets the closest approach you can get to the black hole while still shining vigorously. The gas that's closer than that location can't shine. Now, the key is that if the black hole is, like, is, is spinning like that tornado, in fact, that um, ISCO region can move closer in. And so the gas shines closer to the black hole. It shines in a region where time is running more slowly, and we can see that effect in data. Okay. Just to briefly show you a little bit of real data, um, how can we see this? This is, a, this is what we call a spectrum in the X-ray. So we, we, we take the X-ray signal from black holes, for, from, from this particular black hole, and the, another romantic name, NGC 3783. Um, and we spread it out into its colors, into its X-ray colors, or more precisely, its X-ray energies. And what we're looking at here, the reason why it has this spiky, spiky nature, is that we're looking at the X-rays emitted by iron, literally the same iron that is, there's no iron around here, but the same iron that, that is, is, uh, is on Earth, there's little traces of iron in that swirling gas. And that iron is, um, the term is fluorescing, it's shining at very particular energy, a very particular color of X-rays. But we don't see a single spike there, we see that triangle shape, we see there's a tail to that spike, down to the lower X-ray energies. And what we're seeing there 
is the effect of time running slowly, that those, those, those um, X-rays are coming from the iron that is very close to the black hole. Um, we're looking at a place where time is running slowly, and that shifts the signal down to the lower energies in the X-ray spectrum. We can model all of this and actually measure in a quantitative way how the black hole is spinning, how the accretion disk is rotating around it. We can start to do some real science from this. Um, and uh, and that's, that's, that's been a big part of, of, of my work, my group's work, is to try to actually extract real physics of these black holes from these kind of, these kind of data. Okay, so, dirty little secret I haven't told you about a lot of these X-ray um, observations I've been showing you is uh, X-rays are completely absorbed by the Earth's atmosphere. Now, that's a good thing um, for all of us, I mean, you think UV is bad for you, you know, put sun cream on, uh, wait till x-rays um, get at you. It's a good thing for us, but it's a bad thing for doing astronomy, because we'd love to be able to see x-rays from, from space. So what we have to do is we have to go to space to do, to do this kind of work. So in fact, a lot of what I've been showing you has been done by satellites, has been done by x-ray telescopes that are on satellites that are orbiting, orbiting around the Earth. And one of the most productive satellites has been the, the Chandra X-ray Observatory, which is a, a NASA facility. Um, and this was launched uh, almost, almost 20 years ago. There's a whole fleet of these satellites now. The, Europe has a, has, another, has a flagship facility, the so-called XMM-Newton telescope. But there's, there's, there's other uh, smaller uh, telescopes. India has a telescope now called, called AstroSat. Uh, as well as other, other NASA facilities. So this is our fleet of telescopes doing this kind of, this kind of work, the current high-energy fleet. It's all getting a bit old. I mean, these two flagship observatories, the Chandra Observatory and the Exxon Newton Observatory, are now both 20-year 20 20 old facilities. I keep getting invited to these 20-year parties for them. Um, so but it makes it start to make me feel old. Uh, so they're, 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 getting, they're getting on a bit. And of course, what that means is that it's old technology. It's typically 30-year-old technology if it's, in a, if it's in a satellite that was launched 20 years ago. And there's so much more we can do now with, with, these, with these data. So looking to the future, we need bigger telescopes and new technologies. And there's two major efforts worldwide right now for this. One is uh, firmly rooted in Europe. It's called the Athena X-ray Telescope, or the Athena mission. So this is principally led by the European Space Agency. It has UK involvement, um, and it's also got some, a little bit of US involvement. And then the other big facility, which right now is, is, most, is entirely a US project, is the so-called LYNX Observatory. LYNX doesn't stand for anything. Um, they thought it would be a cool name because the lynx cat has this mythical ability to look through, look through walls. Um, so th these two major facilities are, are going to move us forward in these studies. Now, what, what is there still to learn? One of the most dramatic things we haven't learned yet is I've been talking about all these massive black holes in the middle of galaxies. I haven't told you where they've come from. We actually have no idea where those massive black holes came from. We know they're there. We can see that there, but, but we don't know where they, where, where they came from. So one of the things that these observatories are going to do, in fact, one of the main things they're proposed to do, is to look at the origin of those black holes. To do that, we have to look at black holes that are very far away, because then we're also looking back in time. We're looking at black holes that are very, very young. So just to give you a, a, a quick notion of how that works, this is what we hope to be able to see in a few years when the next, the successor to Hubble Space Telescope is launched, the so-called James Webb Space Telescope. The, this will be a view of galaxies that would, should be just a few hundred million years old. So it's really, you know, galaxies are much younger than what we can currently see. If we were to look at this with these new X-ray facilities, we'd be able to see, again, a field of stars. But now these black holes are the very first seeds. These are the first small black holes that have formed through some process we still have to figure out. And these will be the ones that will grow up to be the monster black holes that we, that we see today. That's one, one example of the kind of things these new, these new facilities will, will do. So after having you in the stars for the past 40 minutes, um, let, me, let me bring us back, back to Earth 
um, before, before we close and, and t t uh, do a question and answer, um, and ask, what have black holes ever done for us? Okay. Well, there's, as the astronomer, I like to think black holes have shaped the, 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 the galaxy we live in. Um, they are our window into profound discoveries about the nature of gravity and nature of, of high, energy, high energy physics. However, you know, there actually are more hard-headed reasons why we should invest in some of this research. And I, hadn't, I didn't mention, because I was a little bit too embarrassed to mention, that um, you know, these facilities here are multi-billion dollar facilities. Okay? The, 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 the Athena mission is currently priced out about 2 billion US, and Lynx is about 5 billion US. So these are, these are enormously costly facilities. So you know, how we've got to put this into some, into some earthly context, because you don't take $5 billion and shoot it into space. The $5 billion are spent here on Earth on people and technologies, and those technologies can be very profound. So for example, you know, to, to give you some, just a, a quick taster of some of the things that, that, uh, that this kind of science has done for us, the general physics of warped space-time, all the kind of mathematics that we, and physics we have to know to be able to study black holes, is absolutely essential for GPS to work. Okay? This, the idea that time slows down close to a black hole is exactly the same as the idea that time slows down on the surface of the Earth compared to satellites. And if we did not account for that, none of your GPS devices would work. There's a little subroutine in the code in your GPS devices that have black hole mathematics embedded in it that makes your GPS work. Okay, it would be absolutely essential. Believe it or not, um, the scientists doing this kind of X-ray astronomy, you're looking, you're building X-ray satellites to X-ray telescopes, lead the world in X-ray technologies in general. They lead the world in development of, of X-ray detectors and of X-ray optics, yeah, the ability to be able to focus X-rays and, and the like. And those are rapidly adopted by medical and security, uh, security uh, sectors. In fact, the very first airport scanners ever to come online in the 60s that company was actually started by um, one of the pioneers of, of, of X-ray astronomy who got, who got the Nobel Prize for black holes um, some, a few years ago. And then um, back in the 80s, late 80s, there were some radio astronomers in, in Australia who were actually funded to search for exploding mini black holes. That's what their proposal said. They wrote a proposal. They wanted to search for exploding mini black holes. And part of this involved taking a lot of data from a radio telescope and then reprocessing it. That mo meant moving the data from this side of the room to this side of the room. And they got so annoyed of carrying computers around that they um, decided that they were going to uh, code up what became Wi-Fi. So Wi-Fi, actually, the, the, the patents for some of the key uh, key software technologies that make Wi-Fi work is actually, were actually done by astronomers studying black holes. So that's an example of just strange spin-offs that come, and very important and profound spin-offs that come when you're doing something that is blue sky and you're just trying to push the limits as much as you can without knowing where those limits, where those limits are. So let me stop there, and um, I thank you for your attention. And if there are any questions, I'd be happy to, to take them. Thank you very much. Okay. So there was a question in the front there. And maybe after that, we can go to gentleman in the middle. Yes. Thank you very much. I've lived through... Um, uh, steady state, um, expanding, contracting. Now we've got the Big Bang, and uh, because the maths didn't work out or something, we've invented uh, dark matter and dark energy, and the world we live in has gone from 100% of what we see to, I think, 5% or whatever That's it right. is. Um, you didn't mention dark matter. Um, I might have missed it, but um, how does that figure? I mean, are these um, black holes sort of giant machines that absorb it or kick it out or yeah. 
something else. Uh, um, I, I know they've, they've said that they do emit as well as receive. Yeah. Uh, initially, it was just they received, and now I know it, I know it's a, a moving event, the whole thing. Um, so I just wondered where does dark matter, dark energy figure in all this? Uh, and just as a supplementary, when you show the black hole, um, I know you said it was like an orange on the sun, which would assume it's not a crisp. <laughs> but, but, but when you see it, it's, is it cut in half? Because we see a black hole. When you look at an orange, you see the outer skin of the yeah. orange. So it, are we sort of segmenting the black hole to see the center? Or is it just that the only bit of light that you see would be around the edge and you can actually, if you're looking straight on it, you would see through it? Yeah. Now, so the two great questions. Uh, the first question about dark, dark matter. So yes, you're right. I mean, our, our notion of um, our so-called cosmological model, you know, our picture of the universe on the, lar on the largest scales, has evolved uh, quite dramatically in the past 50 years, say. Um, and that's largely been well, almost entirely driven by revolution in data. You know, we now have so much more information. And one of the, one of the profound discoveries has been that there's 95% of the universe is not the stuff we're made of. And even most of the matter is not the stuff we're made of. You know, there must be a lot of other stuff out there that we see its effect gravitationally, but not, um, but not through any other means. The, the consequence for the black holes directly is actually not all that great, we think, because the dark matter is so spread out through the universe. Even within the galaxy, the dark matter is so spread out. It doesn't, uh, whereas the black holes are very concentrated in the middle, they don't have much of an effect on each other. Um, any dark matter that happens to be close to the black hole would get pulled in, but it, it is, there's, there's not much of it, not much of it there. Then the second question was, um, that's right, the, 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 the segmenting of the black hole. What we think we're seeing here is, remember those swirling gas images I showed you, we think we're seeing that sort of tilted, tilted on like that. So the the, the, the flow of gas is mostly face-on like that. So the hole you're seeing there, so it's not segmented, we, we're, we're seeing everything there is. The hole is, um, is pretty much the hole in that, in that swirling gas pattern. If it was edge-on and there was gas in front, it would actually look, probably be a much more confusing image. It probably wouldn't be as clean as it, as it was. Yeah, thanks. Questions back there? Uh, oh, oh, sorry. Then we'll I have yeah. the mic, as they say. Okay. Um, two much simpler questions. Yeah. Uh, how many are known to exist or thought to exist, and what's the closest one to our galaxy? Is there one in our galaxy, or are there several in our galaxy? Excellent question. Um, for these supermassive black holes, these 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 very large ones we're talking about, there's one in the centre of our galaxy. That's about twenty-five thousand light years away, um, and. We are pretty sure now that there is one in the center of every large galaxy, or every significant galaxy. I'm taking a judgment on what a significant galaxy is, but, but, uh, but on every significant galaxy, there, there, there's a massive black hole. Now, there's a whole other raft of, or a whole other class, if you like, of black holes, which are those that come from the death of stars. And those are much smaller. Um, there's, they're, they're typically about 10 times the mass of the sun and only about 30 kilometers across. They're much, much smaller objects. And there's probably millions of those in each galaxy. So the closest one of those to us that we know about is maybe a few, is about 1,000 light years. There's probably some closer that we don't know about that are not swallowing gas. Therefore, they're black objects on a black sky. So, yeah. There was a question over there. Then we'll come, oh, then we'll come to the front. But. Yes. Um, we're now in an era of gravitational waves dominance through quantum electromagnetic waves. Yes. And one thing I was reading about in the Barclay world is um, as measured on fixed points in space time, is it theoretically possible these gravitational waves can be deflected or refracted or just reappeared as well around fixed points? Or would that be a way of Yeah, excellent question. Um, 
So, 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 yeah, let, let me repeat it. So, so um, the gentleman was, was noting that one thing, I, one thing I didn't talk about, because there's so much I could have talked about, one thing I didn't talk about was some of the recent discoveries of so-called gravitational waves, which are these ripples in, in the fabric of space that uh, have, have very recently actually been discovered by, by several experiments um, here on Earth. And the, the gentleman was wondering whether interference of those gravitational waves or diffraction or refraction of them could be responsible for, some, for, the, for the galaxies we, we, we have today. Uh, so it's very hard, it's actually very, very hard, we believe, to reflect or refract a gravitational wave. We, we know some, what it would take, and it would take matter of unbelievable densities to, to do that. The, around the black hole themselves, they actually do, do re refract, but... but um, Black holes are very small. So we think that they're probably not that inconsequential for, for the formation of, of galaxies, uh, but you know, we're always open for, for new discoveries. Yeah. There was a, a question down here on the front. No, down, down the front. Yeah. Hello, hello. Yeah, okay, I've got two questions. Uh, one of them is, what happens to elementary particles when they enter a black hole? And the second one is, I've heard that with um, ultramassive and supermassive black holes, the point of certain death is actually a lot further in than with ones that are di the diameter of an asteroid. Yes, e two excellent questions. Um, so what happens to elementary... And they're actually related questions in, in, in some way. So let me start with your second question. You're right that, that we believe... You know, what, why would you die if you fall into a black hole? Okay? Well, it's a morbid question, but what, why, why would you die? As you're falling in the black hole is tugging on you, and it's actually tugging on your feet more strongly than it's tugging on your head, because your feet are closer to the center of the black hole. So it kind of stretches you out. Now, the amount it's stretching you out um, as you cross over that event horizon is actually much more gentle for the very massive black holes than it is for the, for the, for the very small black holes. So for the very massive black holes, you can sail over that event horizon and keep on falling in without actually feeling much discomfort. And it's, it's only much closer in that that stretching will, will, will get you, um, for want of a better word. Um, and, and the process is called spaghettification. Um, it's to be turned into spaghetti, I think, spaghettification. So, um, so, and you, and so you're quite right. The smaller the object is, the, the stronger that sort of difference is, that differential force is. And the, um, the more the 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 the, um, the more you'll be pulled. Now, the second question about elementary particles is a really good question. So, what happens to an elementary particle when it falls in? The the honest answer is we don't really know. Actually, to be honest, the it, it, if if it's a, if it's not an elementary particle, say if it's a proton, and a proton actually has some pieces inside of it. It's got quarks in it. As it gets very close, it'll also be stretched out in just the same way we are and will be pulled to pieces. But if it's a true elementary particle, like an electron or a quark, then it will hit that space-time singularity, and that's a place where we don't actually know what happens. So um, it's, a, it's an excellent question, and, and we just don't know, I think is the honest answer. To that. Hello. Um, I'm up here um, at the back. Yeah. I just want to say... Fantastic talk, absolutely gripping. I've taken notes to try and understand uh, more of it. Um, I, bringing back to the newspaper was your, one of your first images. You, one of your slides said European Space Agency. You're connected with it. Um, you can guess what the question is. Are you safe? Uh, <laughs> regardless of what happens, um, is this wonderful work, terribly important work, and thank you so much for making it accessible. Thank you. Yeah. Um, uh, is, the, is your work safe with ESA? So, thankfully, um, ESA actually is a disjoint organization from the EU. It's actually a completely different... It's a, it's a, it's a different... Treat. So, for example, Canada is... At, I never quite know how this works, but Canada is actually part of ESA. So, um, so, so that set of... of um, that partnership is, is safe. Um, it's the same situation as CERN. CERN is, also, CERN is also safe. The broader landscape is a little more worrying in the sense that the, you know, there's, we, 
the UK government, and not just the UK government, indeed, you know, across Europe and the US, there is a concern that they might turn their attention away from this kind of basic blue sky science. And I feel that would be incredibly damaging, not only damaging to, to the, the, the great exploration that we're all on, but also to your nat to national interests. Because while it's true that, that you know, direct funding of technologies will, will yield usable stuff in five years, you know, where are we going to be 50 years from now? I mean, we have no idea what technologies or what, even what's underpinning science we need uh, will we'll be dominating 50 years from now. And you need people who are pushing the frontiers just for the frontiers' sake to, un to uncover that, that science, to trip over those technologies that no one had ever thought about making, um, we, you, you, you need that, even if your overall goal is just national self-interest self or self-interest of, of, of society. So I think the answer is yes. The, the, the particular partnerships that, 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 um, that uh, I'm, I care about are mostly safe, with the one exception being the European Research Council grants, the ERC grants, which is a, a very important um, EU-funded grant program. Um, that Britain has traditionally done extremely well in. We've actually outcompeted the rest of Europe two to one in those in those grants. Um, so we get twice as much money back as we put in for, for, for that that program. So that that is still very much an issue uh, that is wrapped up with Brexit. The other partnerships are safe, but yes, it's, thank you for raising that point. It's, uh, this is not devoid of politics. This this work. Yes. So, um, when I was taught physics about a million years ago now, um, I seem to remember general relativity being talked about in a sort of slightly tentative way, as though it wasn't sort of too well established. I mean, well, there was Eddington's experiment, and also I seem to remember the perihelion of Mercury, yeah. assessed by 43 seconds a century. And sort of people talked about it, but I suppose with a certain amount of trepidation. But as I get the impression now, it is totally mainstream. You couldn't do the things you do without using general relativity as just one of your tools of the trade, almost. Is that so? That is absolutely true, yeah. yeah. General relativity is now completely mainstream. There are, you know, between the black hole work, you know, the imaging work, some of the x-ray work we've done, the gravitational wave detections, these are all, you know, one after the other, they are um, important confirmations of of general relativity as it stands. Now, one day, you know, we actually, as scientists, we love to break theories, because if we break theories, we, we, we learn something about what comes next. So we'd love, we'd love to break general relativity, um, it's just not breaking, which is annoying. Um, so, but, but yes, it's, 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 it's pretty mainstream, pretty mainstream now. Yeah. No thanks. Um, let's see, so a bunch of hands went up at the same time. But can we take maybe one from the back and then we'll come, uh, come over to the front? Uh, when we observe quasars, we measure very large redshifts. Are all those redshifts recessional, or are they uh, some of the redshift due to um, the black hole retarding the light as it's emitted? Great question. There, it depends what you're redshifting. So what I showed you were some X-rays that are being redshifted by, by the black hole themselves. Most of what we see in a quasar is actually light from the galaxy. So that's, that, that is the whole thing is... Is, is recessional redshift? That's a great question. There was a big debate about this in the in the 60s, um, very big, a strong debate before either side had any right to, to really to claim victory. But but I think since then um, there's been a big debate about this. There was a question. Um, can we just go the, the third row back, and then then we'll come. Hi. Um, you mentioned earlier that the fate of a sufficiently large dying star is to become a black hole. Yeah. Um, I suppose the question is. Will these black holes, mentioned also earlier, that they, we don't know where they came from, where are they going? Will they exist until the inevitable heat death, or will they, for lack of a better phrase, eat themselves to death? That, that, that's a great question. Um, we don't really know where they're going. I mean, if once, if the universe really continues to expand forever, and, and there's infinite time, then eventually, given enough time, they would uh, evaporate. You know, Haw um, Stephen Hawking has this notion of black hole evaporation, where very, very slowly a black hole can, 
The energy can leak out of a black hole, in essence, and the black hole can gradually shrink. It's a very, I mean, nothing I showed you is affected by that whatsoever, but given infinite time, that can happen. So eventually, the, the theory would go that the black holes would, would um, evaporate, turn into radiation, and then the whole universe would just be full of radiation. So that's the... Yeah. And there was a question down, maybe the last question, so countdown says 30 seconds, so... Years ago, I remember reading something about the collapse producing a singularity surrounded by an event horizon or the possibility of a naked singularity. Has anything like that ever been seen? Um, to date, not. We'd love to find naked singularities. This is, this is one of the things they're looking for, the gravitational wave signature. Um, but again, it's, it comes back to the idea of breaking general relativity. We'd love to do it, but, but right now we, we, haven't, we haven't done it. So, yeah. so the timer is reading zero, so I think we have to call it to a close. So thank you very much for your attention. Thank you.